Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. We often hear that healthcare in the United States is expensive, but what does that mean exactly? How can policymakers reform our healthcare system with a market-based approach? My colleague, Jim Capretta, author of the new book, U.S. Health Policy and Market Reforms, an introduction, joins me in this episode of Political Economy to discuss those questions and more. Jim is a senior fellow and holds the Milton Friedman Chair at the American Enterprise Institute. Jim, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Very good to be with you today. When people say U.S. healthcare is expensive, do they mean that the country overall spends a lot on healthcare as a share of our economy? Do they mean it costs you know a lot to stay overnight at a hospital or get an MRI? Is that what they mean? Do they mean how prices rise year to year, healthcare inflation? Generally, what do people mean when they say U.S. healthcare is expensive? Can I answer all of the above? I mean, I think uh, sure. I think there's you know the people that study health healthcare policy probably start with number one, and they say, you know, all these other high income countries spend a lot less on medical services than the United States does, and they seem to be doing okay. So healthcare is obviously, quote, expensive relative to our incomes in the United States compared to these other countries. So that's one. The second one, the, the one that you just mentioned, is probably the one that people observe just in their own ordinary lives, which is you bump into this system every once in a while, you'll see a bill and you say, they're charging that much for that? It seems a little bit outrageous. And, um, and many, many times they're right about that. The prices can be kind of irrationally high in kind of a random way. And then I think there's a third element, which is just generally people say, um, you know, we're spending a lot on healthcare, but boy, there seems to be a lot of waste. You know, it just the system is kind of overbuilt and there's all kinds of people around and middlemen and everybody's got their hands in the, in the pockets of the premium payers and the insurers to overcharge and they seem to be well compensated, you know? And so, uh, they, they just think the whole system is kind of irrationally overbuilt and expensive for those reasons. I think some people might say, okay, if the U.S. spends a fifth of its economy GDP on healthcare, and some other country, maybe European country, spends 10%, 12%, something like that, why don't we just do that? And look at all the money we would be saving Every year, let's just go to that system. We'll spend 8% of GDP. I don't know what that works out to in trillions, but it seems like it'd probably be a lot of money. <laughs> and they could, a lot of things you could do with that money. You could, uh, I don't know, I mean, uh, you know, conservatives, they could t- cut taxes with that money, or you could bullet trains everywhere with that money. Why don't we do that? Because that I've heard something, I've heard suggestions not too dissimilar to that from some politicians. Not not too dissimilar. In fact, it's 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 been repetitive for decades. That's been more or less. I mean, this is you know kind of a caricature a little bit, but more or less the democratic platform, frankly, for a long time on healthcare. They don't 
they don't kind of come out and say it quite like that because it's hard to get from A to B. But I mean, they basically make the arguments very frequently that, hey, all these other high income countries, you know, cover everybody. They have some kind of universalized system. There's no paperwork involved. And um, they regulate, you know, how much they spend on all this stuff. And everybody's more or less happy with it. So what's the problem, U.S.? You know, so they they are pushing the U.S., which has a much more unwieldy system, trying to push the U.S. in that direction here and there and everywhere, you know, wherever they can make progress. And uh, yeah, I think that their end goal is some hybrid Americanized version of that kind of system that you just described. Why are we going for a hybrid system? Why don't we just go to those systems? I mean, they're they're working. They're actually out. They're not on a you know a drawing board. There's actual countries with those systems. Let's do that, and we'll save that ten percent or eight percent of of GDP and spend it on something else. Now, there's a couple couple things going on here. One is that the scratch the surface a little bit of those systems, and you see there's more dissatisfaction than is commonly expressed in the United States debate. Look at the Canadian system, especially the UK system. I mean, if you look at the National Health Service, where they have fairly strict control, governmental control over resource allocation, there is great dissatisfaction and great unease and lack of confidence that they can get their act together to actually provide services to people when they need it. So there are huge waiting lists at this point you know, people dying literally in ambulances waiting to get into emergency rooms. Lots of people don't get health services because they'd have to wait so long. There's a lot of pain and suffering involved when you wait for health care. It's not measured in these national health systems. So many of these systems, basically, let's try it this way. 5% of health care is for the really, really, really big expensive cases that involve lots of intensive capital intensive hospitalizations and care. Um, the rich countries in, that you refer to basically are able to control a lot of their costs by having supply restrictions on the most expensive care. They make cheap care, primary care, widely available and inexpensive and they don't charge anything for it. And people like that, that's good. Um, but when you really need something and you gotta get in the line and you gotta wait six or nine months to get something done, and that doesn't that waiting time doesn't count in the national health statistics. And then you have to ask, well, what would they be willing to pay if they could have had that, you know, neurosurgery, you know, eighteen months earlier than they got it? Um, you know, what would what was that worth to that person? Now well, they probably suffered an awful lot for eighteen months waiting for that to happen. And so, supply control as a way of healthcare cost control, I think. You know, it's first of all, it's, it'd be hard to implement in the United States. And second of all, the costs of it are a little bit more invisible than many Americans realize. If I were to look at healthcare inflation, rising healthcare costs, if I were to look at healthcare inflation over the past decade, and they had a bunch of countries, you know, Western European countries, Scandinavia, maybe Japan, United States, Canada. And I and I did and I saw all the the percentage increases, but it did not have the name of the country with each percent. Would I be able to quickly pick out America? Is it is it that these other countries have good cost controls and healthcare inflation is very very low, and ours is 
much higher and it'd be obvious. That's the crazy, wild, unwieldy American system. You'd be able to identify it by level, but not necessarily by rate of change. So obviously it's way, it's a way, way significant outlier on level has been for 40 years, 50 years. Um, on rate of change, there's a lot of pressure for upward spending, upward pressure on spending in many high income countries and not just the United States. So I think it'd be more of a mixed bag than you probably uh, you know, would think. Um, has the rate of change in the United States been uh, substantially above the rate of change in all other high income countries over the last 15 years? I'm not sure I know the answer to that question. The answer is probably yes, a little bit higher, but not so much that it would have changed the basic story, which is that the U.S. has always been way above what they're spending. One other factor you need to understand here is that <laughs> there's a conflation going on here of lots of things. One, I just mentioned one previously about supply control as a way of doing cost control. A second one is that the, the richer the country, the more they spend on healthcare. Many studies have shown for a long time that the more income you have, healthcare is a preferred consumption item. And so you get an extra dollar, you're going to spend even more than you did with the previous dollar on healthcare. Okay. And so because, you know, U.S. per capita, you know, GDP per capita is well above many even other high income countries, we are spending more on healthcare than other countries for that reason. One, that's one important reason. A second important reason is we have lots of, we're a big heterogeneous country. We got lots of things going on in the United States. And one of the, many of them aren't so great. Um, there's substantial costs in American healthcare measured costs from societal problems that are way more acute in the United States than they are in other high income countries. So if you just compare the United States with Canada, you know, between uh, substance abuse questions, traffic fatalities, violence, and the results of violence spilling into the medical care system, you'd, you'd be surprised how much expense is associated with those societal problems spilling into the cost of healthcare. So is that our healthcare problem or is that a, you know, a, 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 another social problem in the United States that has a spillover effects on how much we have to spend on healthcare? When you think about healthcare policy and sort of how you structure your analysis and your scholarship, do you do you start with, okay, we have Medicare, we have Medicaid, we have private health insurance, and we have what people call Obamacare. Do you think about that's the world we live in? And any ideas I have about creating a better healthcare system operates within that that universe. So I'm not going to spend time thinking up of a a brand, you know, replacing Medicare with some brand new thing, repealing Obamacare with some brand new thing. That this is sort of the world you live in, and from there, then you think like, okay, we could change this, we could change that. Is that which? How do you how do you approach thinking about reform, which is the title of your book, U.S. Health Policy and Market Reforms? Well, it's very much the former and not the latter, you <laughs> right. know. So. I think Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act you mentioned, is a good example of the kinds of things that 
can be done in the American political system. A lot of people think, well, you know, the Affordable Care Act completely transformed American healthcare. It did nothing, <laughs> nothing remotely close to that. It was an attachment, an add-on to an existing incumbent system that basically added a new subsidy system and expanded another program, Medicaid. Those were the big consequential changes. Um, they changed some regulations on private insurance, but really for a pretty small segment of the, the country. And so it wasn't a transformation of how U.S. healthcare worked by a long shot. And so one can think of reforming the system really in that kind of context. If you want to do that, would be a big reform, you know, some new reform that was of equal size, but maybe in a slightly different direction. It wouldn't change every aspect. You have to accept that 160 million people are in employer-based healthcare. And you're not gonna just overnight say, you know, I'd like to get rid of that and start with something totally different. That's, you know, that's just not in the cards. President Obama shied away from doing that for exactly the same sound political reason. He knew he couldn't get it done. And so why bother? So, you know, he, he did a reform that he thought was doable and it was really an add-on, frankly, to an existing system. So, I'm very much in the camp of you need to kind of accept that this is a big, gigantic system, lots of players, lots of interests, lots of, you know, already expected insurance coverage from various sources that people don't want to just upend overnight. And people depend on it for their health, right? So, you know, you can't messing around with this gets people pretty excited. And so you're going to have, you're dealing with, adjusting and making changes to what you've inherited rather than starting from scratch. So are, so a reform as significant as the Affordable Care Act in our system, that is a major reform. It didn't create a brand new healthcare system, but it is a major reform. Are there market reforms that are possible within our current system broadly that are realistic and would also be as significant as the Affordable Care Act? I think there are. I think there, there are a couple that would be as important. Um, both involve trying to change the incentives within the two big insurance systems that we have, you know, that we have the incumbent systems that exist now. Most of, most of us get our insurance through. That would be Medicare for those who are elderly, 65 and older, or disabled, and the employer-based insurance system for people of working age and their family dependents. So between the two of them, you know, you're talking over 200 million people, well over 200 million people get their coverage from those two sources. They're the biggest payers of medical services in the country. And you know, so there, the incentives embedded in those two systems really drive how the hospitals organize themselves, how the physician groups organize themselves, how the big academic centers operate and organize themselves. They, you know, the, the money that's coming from those big programs really drive how the whole system operates. So if you want to change some of the incentives, you got to dig into those and say, what do we need to do to kind of build in some better incentives for efficiency, basically? My, my view has always been that the fundamental problem here is lack of discipline, lack of accountability, lack of incentive to look at what we're doing and say, you know, if we change this, 
we could drive out 5% of costs and lower our price or lower our premium. You know, so that, that drive for higher productivity from those who are delivering services, more efficiency, eliminating waste, you got to get incentives into the system somehow to allow those who are running those operations to kind of take a hard look at their business plans and say, what do we need to do to get better next year? Okay. And then you need to have them do it every year. So you need 2% productivity improvement, you know, perpetually for the system to get corrected. Right. And so how are you going to get that? Well, well, you mentioned two programs there, Medicare and the employee uh, and the employer provided healthcare. Let's start with Medicare. What, what are some ideas there? What is your big idea? You, you tell me. It's called premium support. It's been around a long time. It's been proposed since the mid nineties. Basically, it would convert how Medicare subsidizes people's enrollment into coverage into something like a defined contribution payment. So the beneficiary would get a fixed amount from the federal government to enroll in a plan, and then they would pick from among competing plans, one of which would be organized by the federal government, the traditional program, but also private plans called Medicare Advantage. And those plans would have to bid and compete against each other based on the premiums they would charge. For this to work, there's two key things. One is it has to be standardized. You have to make all of them offer exactly the same thing. So that the beneficiary, when they pick between one or the other, understand very clearly, it's the same benefits, but this premium is lower, okay? And so therefore they have pretty strong incentives to bid low because they know all things, other things being equal, the beneficiaries will gravitate toward lower premium plans. Right now the competition is very confused because there's multiple benefit packages and lots of other things that create noise in the competition. So you got to standardize it. And then the second big thing is you got to say 100% of the cost or 100% of the savings is on the beneficiary. They're going to get a big lump sum from the federal government that they can use to buy what they want. But if they want to buy one that's more expensive than average, they pay the difference themselves. And if they buy one that's less expensive than average, they pocket the entirety of the difference. So that's premium support in Medicare in a nutshell. CBO says that would drive out about 8% of costs. How is that different than the current system, which you have Medicare, but you also have a private aspect called Medicare Advantage. It seems superficially somewhat like that. Superficially. <laughs> That's the, uh, it, it is, you're right. It's, it's, it's only a few changes away, but they're big changes that have huge political resistance from various quarters, which is why it hasn't happened. First is that you can enroll in the traditional Medicare program today and pay a, sing, a singular national premium irrespective of how expensive it is relative to everything else. So fee-for-service Medicare is not part of any kind of competition today. There's competition in a notional way, but the premium itself is not adjustable based on that competition. Similarly, on the Medicare Advantage side, they offer bids today, but they're paid based on benchmarks that are set administratively, not the bids that they submit. The bids have an effect, but Overall, much more important are the benchmarks, which are set by regulation and not by the bidding system, okay? And then you have the non-standardization problem, which I just mentioned right. previously, which is it's very difficult for the beneficiary to kind of discern who's, who's really offering the better value here because they haven't standardized what they're 
the coverage is. So uh, for those reasons that we're not in the premium support world yet. Um, and so the competition in Medicare is therefore very imperfect. If I brought in a, uh, a Bernie Sanders staffer who, who does health care, what would, what would that staffer, that Bernie Sanders staffer say about premium support? I, you know, I don't want to put words in their mouth. You might want to just ask them, to, you know, have them on yourself. But uh, my guess is what they would say is, well, I, you know, I've, I've heard Senator Sanders speak about healthcare a lot of times. So I, I have some general sense of what he would say, which is that um, the, uh, first of all, why would we want to put healthcare in the hands of for-profit shareholder-owned companies that take 20% off the top and pay it to, you know, high-priced executives and a bunch of shareholders? Right. So that would be his first point. We don't need for profit healthcare. You know, it's just sort of wasted resources going into profits that should be going into healthcare. I think that's his number one point. Second point he'd say is these plans are overpaid today anyway. There's lots of studies showing that, yeah, they might be a little less expensive than fee for service, but the way we set this thing up, they're ripping off the federal government. You know, why would we reward these people by then giving them even, you know, a stronger way into Medicare? And third, we already know the answer here. The problem isn't Medicare. Medicare is already less expensive than commercial insurance. What we ought to be doing is extending Medicare to everybody else. You know, if we would just get commercial insurance inside of Medicare, we'd be lowering costs by that big number you talked about earlier, you know, that the commercial insurance is way overpriced. And therefore, you know, what we need to do is extend Medicare's regulations embedded in fee-for-service Medicare, the government-run part of Medicare, we need to be extending and making that bigger, not shrinking in and making it compete with private coverage. So they would they would argue, look, let's just put these Medicare rates on all the commercial plans and we can lower costs by 25, 30%. And how would you respond to that? <laughs> well, I think the price, the price regulation question always comes down to the the point I was trying to make earlier, which is how, how do you want to make American healthcare more efficient? You can just impose, it would definitely work on a, on a certain level just to say, you know what, we're not going to pay more than X. We're just going to pay you less. I'm sorry, that's what we're doing. You're charging us too much. We're capping what we pay you. What's right. the response on the supply side is the next question, though. Some people might say, okay, I'll, I will become more efficient in response to your price control. There is some evidence that that could happen under some circumstances. But a lot of them might say, you know, I'm just going to get rid of low return services that I provide because I just want to do my high return stuff because you're capping what I'm paying, you know, getting paid. And I'll just get rid of stuff that I don't really want to do anymore, even though, you know, it might be beneficial to some patients. And so they throw stuff overboard. Moreover, you might have some people say, I'm just going to stop providing services altogether, right? That's the whole point of price controls, right? Because they eventually lead to a, a lowering of supply. I mean, it's sort of basic <laughs> that's going to happen to some degree and so if you did that you know how many hospitals reduce their services is it harder for people to get scheduled for surgery how long do you have to wait for this that and the other thing by the way if you lower the compensation of every physician in the country by 25 percent, what does that do to the incentives for you know the best and brightest amongst us to go into medical care right i mean it's a very prestigious profession today. And people who are very capable and the scientists like to go and become doctors. 
right? And, you know, you have to think about, well, if we just lowered everybody's compensation by 30%, what does that do exactly? Maybe there'll still be a lot of good doctors. There probably right. would be, but maybe not as many as we have now. The uh, employer-provided health care, uh, which most people, I think, I'm guessing, I don't, you've probably seen the surveys, are relatively satisfied with their employer-provided health care. Does that need big reforms? They are relatively satisfied, but it does need reform, right? So it's under stress financially. That doesn't mean it's going away anytime soon. But basically, when, when an employer pays for your health care, it comes out of your wages in most cases. And people don't realize that, so it's invisible to them. But when, you know, so the fact that people's salaries are getting squeezed and wages are getting squeezed, that's starting to really become a problem, especially on the lower half of the wage scale. So, yeah, it's a problem that needs to be attended to how to get it more efficient. Basically, what I would recommend is we do something similar to what I just described in Medicare, that we get the employer system moving in the direction of defined contribution systems so that there is a fixed amount going from the employer to competing plans. And then the worker has a pretty strong incentive to enroll in high value, lower premium plans rather than low value, high premium plans. And so you got to have to have, for this to work, you have to have some financial incentives. You know, markets don't work if everybody's insulated from everything, it just doesn't work. So on, on the margins, you still need the worker or the beneficiary in Medicare to say, hey, I'll save 20, 30, 40, 50 bucks a month if I pick a lower cost plan. That's what you need to do in the employer system as well as Medicare. Oftentimes when people talk about healthcare and markets, the criticism is, well, listen, when you're when you're having a heart attack, you're not going to shop around for the best, you know, the best hospital or the cheapest. No, you you you're like, take me to the closest one, ASAP. And I think it's clear from this conversation. That's not what you're talking about. You're talking about you're not <laughs> talking about someone as they're clutching their chest being asked to be a smart and savvy shopper. You're saying someone when they're a system where they have uh, multiple plans, understandable plans competing against each other. That's when sort of the, the consumer choice aspect kicks in. Yeah, you're right. That's one big aspect of the competition, probably covering about 60% of all medical expenses are in sort of the unplanned, not really easily amenable to someone thinking about it <laughs> before they they need the care. By the way, a big part of that 60% is someone starts down, you know, you don't know what's going to be the diet. You don't know what's happening. There's something wrong with somebody. They go in, they do a bunch of tests. The, the pathway, the clinical pathway is not clear. So you can't really shop for it because you're not really sure what you need yet, nor does the doctor. So there's a lot of things that go wrong that take some time to get figured out. And those are not easily shopped for. However, you can have a plan, maybe an HMO, that organized it and said, okay, we don't know for sure in every circumstance, but when you come in, here's what we do. We do this, that, and the other thing. And if this is found on the test, here's where you go. And so they have protocols set up, managed care protocols that direct you based on what's going on. So that's sort of the 60%. There is about 40%, however, that is shoppable in a certain way, okay? Routine things, primary care. You got a chronic condition where you go see the doctor four or five times a year or regular high volume surgeries for which you know many people need at some point in their lives that are discretionary and can be scheduled. Uh, there's, there's a pretty big chunk of healthcare that is in that category 
And that can be subjected to market discipline too. We didn't have had a chance to talk about it, but that involves pricing, standardization, and incentives, just like I just described for the plans, but really apply it just to the individual services. So uh, I imagine there are folks on the left who have ideas about Obamacare. Maybe they want to spend more money so the plans you buy there are cheaper. I'm sure that there are those who still would like a, uh, you know, a, a universal system, a Medicare for all system. Where is this debate on the right as you see it? Is it is uh, it seems like the it seems like the idea of repealing the Affordable Care Act has sort of lost some energy. Where is that? Where is the health care debate there? Well, you know, I'm I'm not a probably a great spokesman for people on the non Medicare for all non public option side anymore because it's not really clear to me that they have very organized thinking about it. In part because during the Trump years, it was quite a confused situation in terms of what do they what were they trying to achieve exactly um so having said that i think on the if republicans become more relevant again after the election it's really an open question what they would do on health care it's not clear to me at all i'm not sure it's very clear to any of them they know they don't like too much government but how they get from that to a practical program, again, your first point, which is working with what you got. You can't dream like you're just going to wipe away this whole thing. Um, yeah, where they would go next, I'm not sure. The kinds of ideas I've talked to you about have been prominent and around for a long time. They are controversial politically. They're very tough to enact. And so my guess is Republicans end up doing things that are a little easier bite-sized, very micro ideas and try to claim that they're going to have a big effect. Okay. So more telehealth, more technology, you know, they might just try bite-sized things like that, trying to take some, you know, more, more take, a, allow people to kind of use uh, tax credits to buy individual coverage more, maybe get rid of some of the Obamacare insurance regulations. You know, I think that that's kind of the stuff that appeals to them because they're a little easier to explain bite-sized things and they don't engender as quite as much of an avalanche of opposition. Jim, thanks for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you. 